This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. It's the story of four men who were murdered in New York over a three-year period. They were picked up at or near gay bars in Manhattan, and they were or were presumed to be gay. And it's about the resulting police investigations, all set against the backdrop of the height of the AIDS epidemic and just tremendous violence that was roiling the city. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Elon Green's book is called Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust, and Murder in Queer New York, and it came out earlier this year. It is an outstanding piece of investigative journalism, and this story is the perfect way to end our first season of Wicked Words. I was so impressed with Last Call that Elon's interview is two episodes. So I don't often quote book reviews, but this outstanding review from the New York Times does a better job summarizing this book than I ever could. It says, a terrific, harrowing true crime account of an elusive serial killer who preyed upon gay men in the 1990s. Green provides an adrenalized police procedural plot without ever losing sight of the fact that these were innocent human beings who were duped, butchered, and discarded. Where is the place that makes most sense to start? I guess you could start it, you know, sometime in the latter half of 2016 when I was looking through a back issue of The Advocate. I think it was 1994, and there was a cover story about anti-queer violence. It was, it was a long story. And about four or five pages into the story, there were just a few paragraphs about a series of murders that hadn't been solved. It described the killings in, in a little bit of detail and mentioned the names of some of the victims. And I was really startled by these paragraphs because it was describing a case that I didn't know. It's not that I'm obsessive about this stuff, but when you're talking about something that happens in Manhattan in the mid-90s, just on the cusp of, of sex in the city, all this stuff's pretty well documented. So I couldn't believe that this had happened without anybody noticing. And I figured out what the case was and realized that there hadn't been anything written about it since the case concluded. And I dove in. 
What is Manhattan like right around the time of the first murder? What is going on in the in the city in those years is the AIDS epidemic has just ravaged the gay population. There were, I think, something like 11,000 diagnoses in New York City in 1991 alone. Even beyond the AIDS epidemic, this was still an, a dangerous place to be gay to the extent that it was in the 50s and 60s, but people were still being murdered for who they were and who they loved. And that's the kind of environment that was the backdrop for this book. Was it at the same time a lively gay scene? Were there a lot of gay bars? Oh, yes. It was wonderful. It was extraordinary. There were dozens and dozens catering to all different tastes and likes. And the book centers on really two of them, which was the the Five Oaks down on Grove Street. And that was a piano bar, but it was also sort of half a classy restaurant. And then the other bar is the townhouse. And that was in on East 58th in what was pretty much a quote unquote straight neighborhood. You know, it was not a, a place for cruising for the most part. So the, the townhouse was classy, as the name suggests, and required something of a dress code. You had to wear a blazer. But at the same time, it also catered to a very vibrant hustler scene because it really was a bar for older men seeking younger men and vice versa. So Manhattan in this time period is a place that is very, very welcoming and also dangerous to a certain extent. So you've got kind of this dichotomy of two different attitudes. That's a dichotomy that exists throughout history. With visibility comes violence. There's always a backlash. So where does the story start, the very first murder? What happens is state troopers in Pennsylvania are called to the scene of a, a, a body by the side of the road in a trash barrel. And they find that the man's name is Peter Stickney Anderson, who is a banker from Philadelphia. He is intact, but for his penis, which was found in his throat. Detectives had not seen a case like this, and it sets them off on a trip of uh, visits around uh, gay bars in Philadelphia. This is 1991, and again, this is either the peak or close to the peak of homicides in New York City. It was either that year or the year before, there were 2,245 homicides. Wow. Which is an unthinkable number. To put it into context, where do you think we are now in, in New York versus then? I bet it's... Four times as many. Wow. Okay, so they find Peter. Where do police in Philadelphia start with this case? They identify who he is, right? Yes, and that takes a little while because he doesn't actually have ID on him. They put a picture of him on the turnpike by the toll booths. But eventually, two things happen. First, they get a call from some of Peter's friends in the in First Troop, which was sort of a, the National Guard troop in Philadelphia. And then they hear back about Peter's dental records, and that definitively identifies him. Once they figure out who he is, they link him to his job. He was a banker, and they begin to piece together his social circle, his family. The troopers fan out and talk to anybody and everybody. One of the strengths, I think, of your book is that you really do focus on the victims, less on whoever the killer would be. So what do we know about Peter besides that he's a banker and, and he obviously has a group of friends who's concerned about him? We know that at the time he is married but separated. 
He had been married previously, had children. We know that he was most likely HIV positive and he was dying. Had he not been murdered, he would have been dead soon anyway, <sighs> which is doubly horrific. He was church going. He went to uh, an Episcopal church in Philadelphia. He loved to go out. He went to Shakespeare in the park. He had close friends. One of the pillars of his life was First Troop of the National Guard, and he met with the National Guardsmen uh, quite regularly right up to the end. Peter was an alcoholic, and that was a big part of his life. He drank pretty much everywhere he went, and it was something that people noticed. He was a functional alcoholic, but it, not in such a way that he could hide it. How does the alcoholism, do you think, does it play into what ends up happening with him? I think alcoholism is in some ways a large part of the book because being drunk makes you vulnerable. And I think that was particularly true for Peter, who was not a large, heavy set person by any means, and I think was particularly susceptible to the alcohol that he was drinking. So from the onset, what the investigators know about him is that he's been married to a woman. He has children, church going. Eventually, once they start talking to his friends and former co-workers, I think they looked at his credit card records and figure out where he'd been. And eventually they realize he is also attracted to men and had affairs and that he was living, I hate, I, I don't like the, the, the term double life, right. but he just had a more complicated life right. that most people didn't know about. It's one thing to be in the closet to sort of society at large while still being out within your own community. Right. There were people who knew that Peter was gay. There was no mystery there. So... Police start looking at his personal life, and I'm assuming a big key would be the credit card receipts, because now they're trying to figure out where he was leading up to the discovery of his body. What are they sorting through right now? Their big break is they get a call suggesting that they talk to a man named Tony Brooks. And Tony Brooks is, at the time, either just elected or running for, I believe it was councilman in Wilkes-Barre. He and Peter had gone together to Manhattan for a fundraiser that was going to be hosted by a real estate agent, a very uh, a fabulously successful real estate agent who had a beautiful home overlooking Central Park. And that's what really sets them on the path of the case. So Peter and Tony go to this fundraiser. What do the police learn uh, about what happened? And I'm assuming Tony would be a suspect. Yeah, I mean, there were quite a lot of people who were sort of briefly suspects. There was uh, Anthony Brooks, who I, I suspect was, was a brief suspect. Tony Hoyt, who he runs into at the fundraiser, who is uh, an old flame. And he was probably also a briefly a suspect. Suspect is sort of a loaded term that doesn't mean as much as people think. And, and detectives tend to use it interchangeably with person of interest. Whenever I'd bring up the term person of interest with detectives, they'd kind of scoff at it. They'd say, that's bullshit. That's, that's just a suspect. <laughs> I just think of it as somebody they want to talk to, like a material witness, maybe. I don't know. And with Peter, the more people that he came in contact with, the bigger the list is. It must be a nightmare that his last kind of known event was a fundraiser, which I'm presuming was probably pretty well attended in Manhattan. There were dozens of 
what would now be known at least to uh, log cabin Republicans. There were politicians there and business people, both men and women. And then what happens at that party is he runs into Tony Hoyt. Tony Hoyt had been invited as well. And Peter was standing by the door collecting donations. It was one of those things where they saw each other and time just stopped a little bit because they had lived together in Manhattan decades earlier, and they had been each other's first love, basically. Mm. They decided that they would get out of there and go to a bar. And so they went to the townhouse to keep the night going. Peter got progressively drunker and asked Tony Hoyt if he could go home with him. And Tony realized sort of where the night might be going, and he lied to him. And he said that his nephew was staying with him and so that he didn't have any room in the apartment. Oh, wow. He called... Peter a cab and told the cab to take him to the Waldorf Astoria, which I don't know, was 15 blocks away maybe. And so the cab took him there. He got out of the cab. And just as he was about to check in to the Waldorf, he changed his mind for reasons I don't know hmm. and nobody knows. And somewhere between there and the townhouse, he met a murderer. And nobody knows where exactly. Nobody knows why he headed back towards the townhouse. Tony Hoyt thinks that Peter was simply so drunk that he forgot that they had been kicked out. Oh, wow. It was tragic. Tony, I imagine, must have felt just tremendous amounts of guilt after this happened. That wasn't his fault, obviously, but... There were people that I interviewed throughout the book who expressed varying degrees of not necessarily survivor's guilt, but an awareness that had things gone differently, yeah. you know, a life might have been saved. Peter has disappeared and then his body is discovered. It couldn't have been much more than 24 hours because there was apparently very little decomposition. There were enough people in Peter's life to be alarmed pretty quickly. Something obviously triggered concern among his friends, which I, I find really nice, actually. It speaks not just to how his friends felt about him, but also the degree to which he was entangled with First Troop. They had uh, some kind of gathering at the Fort Indiantown Gap in Pennsylvania. And when Peter didn't show up, they got extremely concerned. Hmm. So we have Peter in 91, and they've identified him. I assume that this is an isolated incident as far as the investigators are concerned. From the perspective of the Pennsylvania State Troopers, once they investigate the case and don't solve it, they're done. They move on. Their job is basically to keep moving because they investigate cases in Pennsylvania where the local jurisdictions don't have their own police departments or don't have the capability to investigate. And I'm assuming nobody is enthusiastic about really digging into the life of a, a man who, as we said, kind of lived dual lives in that way. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised by actually how much the Pennsylvania State Troopers did dig into his life. Oh, good. I was given about 80 pages of handwritten notes by the head of the troop. He had sort of synthesized the investigation day to day, and they talked to a lot of people. But in the end, they bumped up against the fact that they didn't have anything to compare this to. Right. And they didn't know where the crime scene was. They didn't get any helpful fingerprints off of the bags. They hit a dead end. It does go cold. What is the next thing that happens? A year later, 
the Pennsylvania state troopers get a call from the New Jersey state troopers. And the New Jersey detectives had been called to a scene where they too found garbage bags, but this time the victim had been pretty thoroughly dismembered. The body parts were, I believe, in seven or eight different bags, pretty neatly packaged. The New Jersey state troopers, through a, a VICAP search, found the case the prior year. And even though Peter Anderson had not been thoroughly dismembered, they felt that there was a connection. They felt pretty quickly that they were dealing with a serial killer. These bags, I didn't ask you, with, with Peter's discovery, were they hidden? Did somebody want these bags to be found? They were in a trash barrel. I always go back and forth a little bit on whether or not the bodies were supposed to be found. I don't think so. I tend to agree with what a detective said years later, that the fact that these bodies were found at all was simply a fluke. There are easier ways to let a body be found. You you probably wouldn't put them in a trash barrel in the first place. So no, I, I think it was probably just either good luck or bad luck, depending on how you're looking at it. This killer has progressed from mutilating a body to completely dismembering a body. Is that right? Yes. Okay. What do the investigators find out about the second victim? Thomas Richard Mulcahy is a white-collar gentleman from Sudbury, Massachusetts, born in 1934. And he works for a computer company. And he worked in sales, so he traveled a lot, both around the United States, but also internationally. When he would come to New York, he would tack on an extra day because that allowed him to visit the gay bars and clubs. Much like Peter, Tom was also married. He had been married since 1958, to Margaret, and they had a few children together. Margaret learned of Tom's death when she went to the Sudbury police station to file a missing persons report after the NYPD refused to take one. While she was sitting there waiting, the Sudbury police got a call from the New Jersey State Troopers, and that's how she learned that Tom had been murdered. Horrifying. Let's talk about comparing these two victims. So, relatively affluent white men, both married. I did not catch Peter's age. I just did quick math, which I'm terrible at. And Thomas is what, 58, 59? Something like that. Tom was born in, in 34. I think Peter was born in 37. Two men in their 50s. These are two men who are not regulars. They're tourists, so they're not regulars at all. Does he have a type is, I guess, what I'm asking. You know, it's an interesting question. And I was stuck on that for a while. I think in part because I was, you know, I simply took for granted that cultural portrayals of, of serial killers are actually accurate and that they all have types. And that just simply isn't so. Sometimes it's true. And I think just as often it's not. Peter and Tom, they were sometimes in situations that left them extremely vulnerable. They drank. You know, there would just be times when they were at the mercy of other people to the extent that the murderer had a type. I think that's the type. Tell me a little bit more about Thomas. You said he's married, and he was married for quite a long time. This is, of course, a terrible revelation for his wife, I'm assuming. Yes and no. She did, at the time of his death, she knew he was attracted to men. She had discovered, I think it was a flyer in his pocket, either in his pants or his jacket, which he was going to get dry cleaned, a flyer that he had picked up in a gay bar. And so she knew that he was gay, and, and they had talked to a therapist about it. But 
certainly, I think she was blindsided by everything else. So what do we know once they start searching credit cards, doing the same thing they did with Peter? This is now New Jersey investigators who are taking this over. What do the investigators in New Jersey find out? Well, they find that Tom had come to town on business. He had had a meeting with the uh, accounting firm Deloitte & Touche to sell them on some computers, and the meeting had gone successfully. After the meeting, Tom and an old colleague named Bill had gone out to celebrate, and they had gone to a bar, and they had gotten pretty drunk. And Bill decided to go home to New Jersey. And Tom, who was, I believe, supposed to go home to Sudbury that night, didn't. And he, at some point, decided to go to the townhouse. There, he met a man who found him very attractive, a younger man who was attracted to to men like Tom, who were older and had white hair. And as he told me, sort of looked like Johnny Carson. (laughs) So he had a type. Yeah, and but he noticed... While he was flirting with Tom and and they were uh, talking about Boston and New York and the Red Sox, Tom's attention was elsewhere and that Tom was sort of eyeing a man standing by the piano. It was New York in the early 90s. There were always more fish in the sea and the man flirting with Tom thought, you know, let him go and uh, maybe he'll circle back and maybe I'll have a shot later. And so he goes downstairs and, you know, when he comes back up, Tom is talking to this mysterious man by the piano. Eventually, those two leave together. And decades later, when I talked to him, he said when he had heard that Tom had been murdered, his first reaction was, you know, why didn't I try a little harder? Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I'm talking with author Elon Green about his new book, Last Call, A True Story of Love, Lust, and Murder in Queer New York. A serial killer is stalking men who frequent gay bars in New York City in the late 80s and early 90s. Police have discovered two victims, and they're beginning to suspect that there could be more to come. Investigators now realize there is maybe not a serial killer, but a multiple murderer at most. We've got two bodies at this point. Do the New Jersey investigators have better luck than the Philadelphia investigators than did with Peter? Do they somehow get closer to figuring this out before the next body is found? They had also looked for fingerprints on the garbage bags. They were doing the fingerprinting in some kind of mobile unit. And my understanding is that the change chamber was not airtight, and so no usable fingerprints were lifted from the garbage bags. And once again, because nobody could describe the suspect in any great detail, and they didn't really know anything about him, those investigators hit a dead end too. The last time somebody really saw Peter, where he had interacted with a lot of other people, had been the townhouse, right? That's correct. 
So this man at the piano is not a regular at the townhouse because the musician would have recognized him, the bartenders, right? Wouldn't people have recognized him if he were a regular? The piano player did know who he was. There's a difference between knowing who someone is and being able to say, ah, he went home with the murdered man. We have now two victims. Where do we go from here? The next year in 1993, you have Anthony Edward Marrero, who he was born in Puerto Rico and he grew up in Philadelphia. The little that is known about his life is fairly bleak. It never really got going. And at some point, he began doing sex work in Manhattan. It was never particularly high-end. Sometimes it would be hustling in clubs and bars, and sometimes it'd be outside. And probably on his worst days, he was in a Port Authority bus terminal on the second floor, turning tricks for $10. It's not at all clear where he met the murderer. I suspect it was not at Port Authority, but most likely in or outside of one of the bars in the East 50s. Very little is known about Anthony, and it is an endless frustration for me that his was a life that I was not able to flesh out in the book with any real success. I used a private investigator, forensic wow. genealogist. Elon, um, wow. I mean, I'm pretty good at finding the little threads in people's life. And, and I couldn't really do it with him. I may have gotten his brother on the phone, but I can't prove it. I think part of it is that I don't really trust what I think I do know for certain. Hmm. The social security number that is on the books as being his is for a woman in Washington, D.C. What an anonymous life he's led. Yes, I mean, I think he was on the fringe of the fringe. What a different type of victim this man was. Yes, and that's sort of what I mean when I say that there was no real type yeah. in any conventional sense. They didn't look alike. You know, Anthony was kind of hefty, whereas Peter Anderson was skeletal. So where is Anthony found? How, how is that discovery made? Anthony is also found in New Jersey. He was found by a man who was just walking down the road. He was looking for, I believe it was a blimp. There was supposed to be a blimp in the area, and he wanted to see if he could find it. He didn't find the blimp, but he did find this body. And it was Donald Giberson who called the New Jersey State Troopers. It didn't take them too long to put that murder together with Thomas Mulcahy's the prior year. I would say that they also connected it, it to Peter's death in 1991, but actually I'm not certain about that. There was always a little bit of disagreement among the investigators about whether Peter's death ought to be included in the series of murders. Is Anthony's body in the same condition as Tom's body was, totally dismembered? Yes. I don't remember if it was the same color of bags, but it was the same number of bags, packaged and knotted in the same way. And eventually a medical examiner would observe that the way they were double knotted resembled how he himself, when he was in med school, would double knot bags. And he said, it's kind of a, interesting how this is being done and suggests that perhaps this is being done by a medical professional of some kind. So I'll tell you something funny about the book that I did, American Sherlock. The forensic scientist in the 20s did one of the first profiles of someone, and he was able to figure out that a killer was a professional baker based on the way that he had lettered the ransom note. And the forensic scientist, Oscar Heinrich, said, a murderer is a murderer, but they'll never stop being a baker. It's a habit that you can't get out of, and it gets transferred whether you're killing somebody or you're 
decorating a cake. That's wonderful. So I thought that was so interesting. The medical examiner is making a note that kind of says this might be someone who's connected to the medical field. So they identify Anthony, but I'm assuming they have the same luck you do in piecing together his life and really trying to trace his steps. No credit cards, I'm assuming, that kind of thing. That didn't really seem to much factor into the investigation. They found a man that was friends with him, probably was one of the last people to see him alive. And eventually they spend most of their time actually running down the Johns because they realize, you know, it's the Johns who probably know Anthony best. And so that takes them to Connecticut. Then they also go into Philadelphia because they want to talk to Anthony's brother. They do a fair amount of work. But in the end, especially with Anthony, where he's not going to be somebody that people either will remember or admit to remembering... There's only so much they can do. But this is 93, so no cell phones. I didn't get a cell phone until I think 95. So no cell phones, maybe a beeper. How do you track down Johns in 1993? That can't be easy. It's not easy, but other sex workers who knew Anthony knew who his Johns were. Okay. They would say, ah, you know, there's so-and-so who picks him up every now and then and takes him out of town for the weekend. And then there's, you know, so-and-so brings him home and he's an actor and they had leads. Could they determine how these guys died? They were dismembered, but how were they killed? It tended to be either strangulation or stabbing. Both are very personal. We have one in 91 the second one in 92, and the third one in 93. Does something happen in 94? No, there's a fourth murderer in 93. Yeah, okay. This one is different for a lot of reasons. A man named Michael Sakara is picked up at the Five Oaks, which is the the piano bar down on Grove Street in the West Village. And this time, you know, Michael is very different from the other men. He's not a tourist. He lives and works in Manhattan. And he's also not remotely on the fringe. He's a beloved regular at the bar. Hmm. Loved by his friends and his ex-lovers, you know, his sister. He wasn't somebody that people looked askance at. It's late one night after work, and it's getting to be near closing time. It's last call. A man walks into a bar, and he's introduced by Michael to the bartender as Mark the nurse, or John the nurse. She was never quite sure about this. But either way, he shows his face in the bar, and he allows himself to be introduced as a nurse. And he was seen leaving with Michael, not just by the bartender, but also by two panhandlers outside of the bar who saw him get into a car with him. So at this point, you have to either say that the murderer is not as smart as he thinks he is, or he's brazen, Mm-hmm. Or he doesn't just doesn't give a shit. Right. So what happens? Not that long after, Michael's body is found in Rockland County. It takes a little while to find the entire body. The first bags with his body are found by a hot dog vendor in Haverstraw, New York. A few days later, the rest of his body is found by a fireman and an aspiring policeman who notices the bags when he's out for a walk. In, in the case of Michael. It didn't take them very long to figure out who he was and where he'd been because Michael was an alcoholic and he went to the Five Oaks either five or six nights a week. He was a creature of habit. He worked at the New York Law Journal. There were very few places that he ever went to on any given day. This was something different uh, for the police. They could establish a routine. Moreover, this was a different sort of case because they had people who could 
say that they had spent time in the presence of the murderer and had even talked to him. How did they describe him, the nurse? They tended to describe him as kind of unremarkable, not short, not tall, not skinny, not fat. Oh gosh, average, that's the worst. (laughs) You know, he, he didn't even drive an interesting car. But the detectives realized that they had far more to work with than they had with any of the other victims. So this is where the case takes an important, although not decisive, turn. They form a task force. After four murders, they finally form a task force? Yes, and it took way too long. Rockland County Prosecutor's Office forms the task force with the New Jersey State Police. The NYPD is sort of dragged kicking and screaming into the task force. Pennsylvania State Police are sort of tangentially involved. And then there's a couple of others. They bring in the police forces where the bodies were were left. But the bulk of the work from there on out gets done by the detectives in the Rockland County Prosecutor's Office and the New Jersey State Police. The NYPD doesn't really get anything done in this case. And so the task force is together for, oh, two and a half months, and they interview hundreds of people. They spend their time looking for uh, Marks and Johns and (laughs) male nurses. They get a tip. The suspect lives in Staten Island, works at Mount Sinai. So then they subpoena the records for all the male nurses at Mount Sinai who live in Staten Island. In hindsight, they they keep getting sort of a little bit closer and closer. But of course, they don't know that. And they feel compelled to follow all sorts of leads and not to lean too heavily in one direction. They find a male nurse named Mark who they knew had gone to the townhouse and who lived in Staten Island. And so when they identify him, you know, there's a bit of a problem because he's on vacation in Provincetown. And so they stick flyers under his door and say, look, as soon as you come back, we've got to come to Rockland County because we want to talk to you. Eventually, he does come back. You know, they bring him in and put him in the box and they talk for hours and the detectives are getting frustrated because Mark, the nurse, is not really doing a great deal to rule himself out, but (laughs) doesn't seem to be taking it particularly seriously. And as a detective later said to me, he was kind of fucking with us. Oh, gosh. And they don't rule him out, but they also can't really rule him in, so they let him go. And so eventually, as close as they get, the task force fizzles out. And that is that for about six years. Is there media attention? Is there just outrage in the media over this serial killer? Nothing was published about the task force while it was going on. They would send out these daily reports at the end of the day or the first thing in the next morning And they would be recaps of the work that had been done. You know, we talked to so-and-so. Our plan today is to talk to so-and-so. This is how many people we've talked to. On the last page of each of these daily reports, it says, do not share with the media. Okay. And they were pretty good about that. Stories about these, these killings don't really catch on. They're not really pursued once the task force goes cold. And that's pretty much it. How does it get hot? It gets hot for two different reasons. The biggest reason is that Tom Mulcahy's wife, Margaret, was a dogged advocate for her husband. Wonderful. To the extent that I felt the book had a hero, Margaret was the hero. In my proposal, I had an entire chapter about Margaret because I thought she was just extraordinary. 
and she never let it go. And she even went so far as to hire a private investigator. And one day, the New Jersey State Troopers got a call from this private investigator and then finally got a call from Margaret herself, basically saying, what the hell is wrong with you guys? Get back on this case. Hmm. And so they do. All the detectives credit Margaret with focusing them. The other thing that happens is once the detectives have regrouped, one of the New Jersey state troopers had been home one night watching TV and there was a TV show, I think it was called The New Detectives. I love that series. (laughs) In one of the episodes, there's a discussion of a fingerprinting processing method called vacuum metal deposition. It wasn't a new method, but it was not one that was widely used. So the next day he he came into the squad room and, and told his boss about it. And they had friends up in Toronto, the Toronto Police Service, and that the Canadians had a vacuum metal deposition machine. And so they contacted the head of the lab, Alan Pollard, who said, you know, feel free to come up and drop off your bags and we'll process them for nothing. And not all of the bags proved to be of use because one of the notable things that had happened, and it was not written about at all contemporaneously, was that the mercurial medical examiner in Rockland County refused to turn over the bags to the New Jersey troopers. So the evidence essentially curdled and became useless because he never dried out the bags. Oh, boy. And you can imagine what would happen to garbage bags like that if they're not dried out and properly preserved. So years later, when these bags were delivered to Toronto, they were pronounced useless. (laughs) But the rest of the bags over the next several weeks or months were processed. Uh, The head of the lab came in on Saturdays and went to work. He managed to extract quite a few fingerprints from these garbage bags. What are they able to compare those prints to? Is it Department of Motor Vehicle fingerprints? Did the thumbprints, did they do that back then in 2000? They took these prints and they made dozens of individual packets, which they proceeded to send out, not just to every single state crime lab, but also Interpol, the FBI. One of those packets is sitting on the desk of a fingerprint analyst in Maine. And now we're talking I guess 2000, she reads this letter at the top explaining the nature of the crimes. Ordinarily, I think she would have put the prints to the back of the pile because this is for an outside agency. Right. She's got other cases. Not her primary responsibility, but for one reason or another, and also because, quite frankly, she was just very sharp and ambitious and hadn't been on the job for very long. She decided to tackle this immediately. And so she takes the fingerprints and enters them into APHIS. Mm-hmm. which was not a nationwide database. It was Maine, New Hampshire, and I think one other state. And she happened to be doing this while she was sitting next to sort of an apprentice. And she said to uh, the young apprentice, um, we're going to do this, but it's a waste of time. We've never gotten any matches, never gotten any hits in APHIS for outside an outside agency for these fingerprints. And, you know, it's not going to start now. <laughs> and so they they enter about a dozen prints. The APHIS system kicks back about, I think, four potential matches for each fingerprint, something like that. And she begins to look at them, and, and to her immense shock, they start to look good. And so she goes through them one by one, 
and finds that they start to match. So at this point, she knows that there are these matching prints, but she doesn't know precisely what they're matching to. So she takes these prints and brings them, uh, I think it was really down the road, to the State Bureau of Identification. And they pull up the case that the prints are attached to. And it's a murder from 1973. on part two of my interview with author Elon Green. I think it strains belief to think that he did not murder anybody between 1973 and 1991. Yep. Given how many people he killed in such a short period of time between 1991 and 1993, it seems unlikely to me. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 